Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 12 to 21. If you're using a Bible there in front of you, it's page 914. We're continuing in our series, Sola Fide, Faith, Only Faith, that is the foundation for all the realities that Paul has been talking to us about in this passage. And I'm going to read just verse 12 through 14 in Romans chapter 5 though we'll be talking through the whole passage. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to this challenging portion of Scripture just chock full of truth. And God, I pray that we would be teachable, we would learn, we would come to love Jesus more because of what we see in this passage. We would come to trust ourselves less and lean into you more because of truth that you share with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage is about justification. It's the theme we've been looking on, really, throughout the book of Romans, the constantly coming back to this great doctrinal teaching, justification, which literally simply means to declare righteous. Another way of saying it would be that someone is declared to have the validating performance record that earns them access to a relationship with God and through the door into heaven. It is a validating performance record we have found that we do not have, but that someone has provided for us in the person of Jesus in his life here on earth. And Paul has been talking about how now we can receive the verdict of acceptance, of acceptability with, with God that we can know God and walk with God, that we can enjoy God, that we can do life eternally with God. And Paul, as he often does, not only in this letter, but all his letters, seems to then raise a question in his mind that he, he is imagining people listening to him raise. It's actually one of my favorite teaching tools of Paul. He will raise a question that he thinks his listeners have and then plow into it. And I think the question he's raising as he begins in verse 12 of chapter 5 is this. How can one person's actions, as noble as they are, bring about such incredible benefits to so many? In another way of saying it, maybe someone is hearing, objecting, saying this, Paul, you've said in chapter 5 that someone might even dare to die for others, and, and, and Jesus even died for people that were sinners but how can one person's life and death provide an event so profound that it qualifies people to go to heaven, that it enables people to have a personal relationship with God, to overcome sin as the controlling reality in their lives? Paul, what you claim to be the work of one man changes the course of human history. Now, maybe if you were asked that question or felt yourself on the receiving end of that question, maybe you would just respond, well, after all, he is God, and that'd be a good answer. He is God. Certainly, that is a, that is a valid answer. But I'd suggest 
there is some legitimacy to the question because we're talking about one human who is dying and doing this for untold millions of other humans. And it is in his humanity that Jesus carries this guilt, bears this punishment, lives this life for others. And Paul then goes and says, the basis on which Jesus Christ does this is his relationship to humanity. He is Adam number two. He is model, man, representative man model two. He stands in the same place that someone else once stood as a representative figure for human beings. Now, I'm going to charge into this and compare the two representations of Adam and, and Jesus as the passage does. But before I do that, I want to just address the whole idea of representative. Uh, representative headship. Uh, theologically, it's called federal headship, which is from the word federal, which in uh, Latin is fodas or covenant. Covenant headship, representative headship. And because the whole idea of representation is not alien to our world, we have representatives in collective negotiations. Trade unions have a trade rep that speaks for them and negotiates for them. Ambassadors are given the authority to negotiate for their country. Elected representatives have the authority to make decisions for, their representative, for those they represent. We don't get to vote to go to war or not go to war. That decision is, is given to representative leadership. Legal representatives stand in as those who have the power of attorney to make decisions for others. But I recognize that this whole idea of representative in a theological sense is, is a little bit of a pill to swallow. It's especially tough for us that are raised in the Western world where we, we revere rugged individualism. We don't look at ourselves as part of a group or a, a, a larger entity. We admire the individualism of our culture, and it's even harder for us. And I think two reasons, I'm just identifying this at the beginning because somewhere in this message, you're going to be going, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. And, and I'm trying to at least address your yeah, buts to some degree. One of those things that I think makes us not like the idea of being represented by someone else is we just like somebody standing in for us at all. I'll, I'll represent myself. You know, I'll do it my way. I'll speak for myself. I'll take the consequences. I don't need somebody else stepping in for me. Maybe even more, we dislike that we did not choose our representative. I didn't pick Adam to be my representative. Did anybody here? Now, I'm, I might have taken the second. I might have gone with Jesus if I had a vote. But I didn't say, yeah, Adam... You stand in for me, buddy. Let me know how things turn out, and I'll go with the flow once that. Nobody asked me. Nobody asked you. That's, that's a hot, tough thing. But I would suggest the fact that we want somebody who is of our choice, if we're going to have to have a representative, is we're going to look for somebody who thinks like me, values what I value, shares my views, my perspectives, and that actually is something that helps to make federal headship a little more palatable because no one could choose a better representative for you than your creator. No one could choose a better representative for you than the one who designed you. 
Because the representative to he, that he chose is not just someone Adam, that God chose. It was somebody he created. He was perfectly created and designed to act exactly like you would act and choose, perhaps better than you would act or I would act or choose. He was a sinless man, a sinless representative in the best, most idyllic of circumstances, but he was in some sense, in a specific sense, a representative for us. And we're going to look at what that means. So let's look at these two representatives. We're going to spend far more time on the first one. I'm just letting you know that because halfway through my message, you're going to begin to panic that, wait a minute, we're not moving down this sermon thing at all. Uh, Don't despair. We're never going to get off page one. So, um, and we'll spend a lot more time in the first block than the second block. All right, so the first Adam, verses 12 to 14. Sin entered the world through this one guy, this one man. Adam was given the opportunity to live righteously. He opted not to. Now, he did a lot of righteous things. He did do things. God told him to name the animals. He did that. He told him to do other things. He did that. He chose the name for the, his wife. Um, and, but basically, he was given one prohibition, and he chose to negate it. God says, don't eat of this fruit. So everything else, everything you can put your eyes on is yours to enjoy, but don't eat this one fruit. And this one prohibition, he rejected. He did not live righteously. He chose unrighteousness. Now, if you are out there, and especially if you're out there in the male gender, there's a question that's coming to your mind. Why are we talking about Adam being the representative? Why is everything on Adam? What about Eve? I mean, come on, after all, who sinned first? Who ate the first piece? If you don't know, I'll tell you, it was Eve. And the word Adam actually means man. It's Adam in Hebrew is man. It's like if you, if you named your first daughter girl. Um, and he's, he's Adam. He's, the, he's a representative man. Why is, why is it him that's being discussed in Romans 5 verse 12 where it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people. Wait a minute. It didn't enter by one man. It entered by one man. Why is the man getting the heat? Well, there's two reasons. Number one, he was the original created being. He was the representative of our race. But more importantly was what he did. Eve, we are told, both in the Genesis account and particularly New Testament passage, 1 Timothy is one, where there is commentary on the event, we are told that Adam and Eve participated in the action far differently. Eve was truly, what the word is used, was beguiled, deceived, buffaloed, if you will, tricked, that she really did not understand. She was still culpable for what she did, but she was not aware of the degree to which she was violating the specific command of God. She was truly deceived by Satan. Adam had no such out. Adam, we're told, and in this passage, the word is used, he trespassed, he transgressed. means to cross a line. You see a no trespassing sign, you're coming up to a woods, and it says no trespassing on all the trees, and you look at it and you say, well, that's for everybody else. And you go in, you have broken the rule, the no trespass rule, because you have trespassed. That's what Adam did. He willfully, intentionally, consciously 
broke the rule when he took it. He knew exactly what he was doing. Maybe he didn't want it to be apart from his wife. Maybe, we don't know why. But he just said, I, I am going to do this even though I know there's consequences, even though I know God is totally against it. I'm going to be God right now, and I'm going to be the Lord. I'm putting myself on the throne of my life, and I'm going to make this decision. And that caused him to have a culpability where sin was viewed as entering the world through him. Secondly, death entered the world because of that sin. It entered Adam's world. It entered their world. And when it, it, the word death is used in three particular ways in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, and all were a consequence of sin. Before sin, there was no death. Because of sin, all three of these senses of death were actualized. The first and all took place because of this deed. Number one, and I've mentioned this before, death is separation. Um, if I died on the platform this morning during this message, what has happened is my material part, which is my body, will flop, be left here. My immaterial part will take off. That's whether you talk about giving up the ghost or, or the spirit has left him. That's a good description. That's what it is. Our immaterial part is separate. My earth suit, my body would still be here, but the me is gone. And it's death is the separation of the material from the immaterial. The second aspect of death that came about because of this sin was spiritual death. And this is our separation in our relationship with God. Our immaterial part our spirit is separated from God. We still do life. We're still living, breathing. We're still acting. We're still going around. We're still operating on the suke level, sukas. Um, there are two dimensions of our immaterial part, the suke level, the soul, and the, the spirit part, the pneumos, and, and the, we're still doing life, relating to others, relating to ourselves, like psychology studies, the study of the sukas. But the vertical dimension is gone. It's dead. It's been disconnected. Now, we can still know about God. We can still cognitively be aware. We can still see in creation the evidences of God. But as far as a personal, vital, intimate relationship that Adam and Eve had, it was severed. There was, there was now dramatic disconnection. And so the first thing they did as soon as they heard God's voice is all of a sudden they're running for clothes. They're grabbing fig leaves and whatever is local to, to cover them. Why? They felt shame. They felt guilt. Something has changed in the vertical. Something very consequential has taken place. It was spiritual death. The third aspect or type of death that this sin brought about is called eternal death. Eternal death is simply the eternal state of living out this spiritual disconnection. All of this took place as a result of Adam's choice in the garden, but here's the most consequential thing to you and I, death passed upon all because all sinned. This had effects to everybody. And what Paul says is, and this is a mouthful phrase, because all sinned. Now, what he isn't saying is because all people sinned, you know, they continually do wrong things, it's not what he's saying by the words. In the original, the term is not in the continual sense or the present tense. It is what's called the aorist tense, a single past action in a moment of time. The whole human race sinned in one single past 
action through its representative head. William Barclay, Greek scholar and New Testament scholar, says it this way, if we are to give the aorist tense its full value here, and in this argument we must do so, the more precise meaning will be that sin and death entered the world because all men were guilty of one act of sin. Now, if you're a thinking person at all, what's going through your mind may be something like this. Wait a minute. I don't remember being in the garden. I don't remember eating any fruit. I, I, look, if you want to hold me culpable and accountable for stuff, I got plenty of sins that you could hold me accountable for. But I don't remember that at all. I don't remember. Nobody was there. I, don't, I wasn't there. What do you mean I'm accountable that I sinned in that act with, with humanity? We did in the, our representative father. So you might ask the question, well, well uh, does that mean I'm not going to be held accountable? Uh, will I be accountable for all the other stuff I do remember having done? Yes, you will. But what passed on to you is a state of sin and separation from God. It is the same thing that is passed on to all humanity. Adam was our representative and his failure to obey brought about separation and a corrupted humanity for everyone since. It brought about the state known as original sin. Now, original sin is a very important term and very misunderstood and, and understandably misunderstood because when I, if I say to you, what does original sin mean to you? I think most of us would say it, the first sin. That's the original. She's the original. You know, what's the original? He's the original. He's the first. But that's not what original sin is. And it's important to understand this because understanding original sin helps us to understand why there is so much of a, both a uh, reaction against this and why Paul is arguing for the seriousness of this belief. Original sin was actually a statement that was put out in the 4th century by a man named Augustine, one of the church fathers, probably the most Pauline-oriented of all the church fathers. And Augustine coined the phrase peccatum originalis, which simply meant peccatum is sin, originalis is original. And what he meant by that was this, sin that is already in us at our origin. Sin that is already in us at our very conception. It is a state of sin that is passed down from every parent to every child. We are not born into a state of, we are born into a state of sinfulness, a state in which our nature is bent toward evil, not toward righteousness. It is stated by, here's how Augustine said it. He said, when a man is born, he is already born with death because he contracts sin from Adam. Now, obviously, the world's view of humanity is very different. And maybe your view of humanity is very different. I understand this is, this is a lot to say, woo, woo. It's a heavy concept. There have been many who have pro, uh, promoted a different view of human life and humanity in itself. One of the most famous of those is a man named Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Writing in the 1700s, he was a... Uh, 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 Jean-Jacques Rousseau, just to get it right in case any of you are his relatives. But um, he, he was um, teaching at the beginning, or in, in actually in the high point of the Enlightenment, the Renaissance, a very different 
contrary to the church view of original sin, contrary to the view of human condition. And he was saying, no, 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 no. People aren't born with a bent towards sin that somehow is tied back and is passed down generationally. People are born with a bent towards good. People are oriented towards goodness. And he wrote a book, he wrote a number of books, but the most famous of his books was a book called Emil. And Emil is the story uh, of a fictitious character, but his argument is basically that nobody is, is born with a bent towards evil. It is the social constructs in their life, their family, their, their church, their culture, their, their nation, whatever it is, it's the social constructs that impact them and influence them towards sinfulness and improper, ungodly, immoral behavior. But people don't have a bent towards that. And in the book of, of Emile, which actually is a book that has been very influential in many educational systems around the world, um, it basically is the story of a young guy that was born as a baby, and um, he's raised by a tutor, and this tutor is this guy that has this view that this is a child, innocent, drawn towards the good. He just must be protected from influences that will draw him other ways. And he says he must be protected from influences that will teach him domination. And he must be protected from influences that cause him to be protected from, uh, um, I, I forgot the word, basically that word that really was important. Um, that he would always be influenced, he would be controlled by others. I can't remember the exact word. But the idea is that people will teach him either to be a dominator or actually a complete retreater and, and totally dominated by others. So this guy said, I've got to protect him from any negative influences because it's out there that's going to change him. And, but if I raise him properly. And so the whole attempt of the book is to show this tutor who believes that there's goodness and there's only goodness in, in, in this, this young man, Emil. So what he's doing is he's constantly getting him in situations, but he's never trying to let him know he's influencing him because that would dominate him. He's trying to not build up his pride or, or to make him feel proud because then he'll dominate back. So he basically raises him in isolation because nobody else can be trusted with influence in his life. And brings him up and is constantly working, and, and he even works it all the way to the end of the book. He finds him the perfect wife named Sophie. She's the ideal mate for him. They marry. It's perfect. It's beautiful. It's bliss. And, of course, the tutor could never let Emil know that he was working to get this girl in his life because then he would feel dominated, and that would change his behavior. So he did it on the sly. So this is whole story, and the picture is this is how it works. If people can just be protected from negative influences in their lives, dominating them or causing them, to, then they'll be fine. They're good because they start off good. Okay, we're going to come back to Emil later on. But the idea is that Rousseau's perspective is the perspective that people start good. They don't start impacted by evil. Now, all of us want to believe in the goodness of people. We all want to believe that we're not, we'd love to think we're not born with a bent toward evil. 
This doctrine of original sin, of being sinful at our origin, sounds negative because we want to see the best in people. Paul himself encourages us to see the best in people. He says in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, this is what love to others is. Love believes all things. Love trusts. Love hopes. But the same guy that wrote that wrote Romans 5. And he's saying, yes, we do those things, but that does not nullify the fact that we recognize there is a bend towards evil. Now, this whole doctrine has been controversial at various stages of the church. In the fourth century, when Augustine was living, there was another guy named Pelagius. And Pelagius had a different view of humanity. His view was very similar to Rousseau's. He was a teacher in the church. He tried to get this to become the church teaching. He was eventually moved out and branded a heretic, but he influenced. And I'd like to just, these are three views of humanity that all of us in this room share to one degree or another, and they are historic views of humanity. One of those is the Pelagian view, that people are fine, that when a child is born, we do not get a bad nature, we get bad models. A child is not wicked because he or she is born wicked, but because he or she learns to be wicked. You are born neutral. Sin is only a problem because you choose to sin. We can, we can will to live good lives. I didn't read the statement that Rousseau made. I'd like to read it now at the beginning of his book on Emil. This is what he said he was trying to argue. He says, this book is simply a treatise on the natural goodness of man, intended to show how vice and error are foreign to his constitution, invade it from outside, and imperceptibly alter it. Let us set down as an incontestable maxim that the first movements of nature are always right. There is, an original, there is no original perversity in the human heart. There is not a single vice to be found in it of which it cannot be said how and whence it entered. Pelagius and Rousseau are saying the exact same thing. People are fine. People are good. People are born. And Rousseau is the one from which we got the phrase in education circles, um, uh, children are a blank slate. It's what you write on them that's going to produce what they do in their lives. Um, he's also the one from which the phrase noble savage has come, where the idea that if, if you could just get a, a, a group of people, we would call them primitive people today that haven't been influenced by civilization, that you would find that if you went in and studied their culture, you'd find that, that there's beauty and, 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 and goodness and righteousness, but they've been stained by others that have infected them. We need to find and, and, and exalt the noble savage. Most people, without even knowing of this term in our culture, a Pelagian. They would feel, at, at worst, a blank slate. Um, at best, everyone is oriented to goodness, and just people outside influence them towards ungodliness. A second view of people is people are sick. This is semi-Pelagian, and this is very prevalent uh, even among the, the church. People came along, and their view of people is that people are spiritually sick. They would believe in the idea that people were inclined to sin and their natures were tragically impacted by sin. But though they're sick, there is a spark of spiritual life within them that enables them to believe on Jesus and receive His forgiveness. That the idea is that, that they are, there, there is a drawing to that, and that they can respond, and they will respond. 
Third is people are dead. This is the Augustine and Augustinian perspective. This is what I understand Paul to be saying. The people are not fine without Christ, as Pelagius said. That people are not sick or drowning and need a lifesaver thrown to them. People are dead. People are incapable that the vertical part of our lives is disconnected and there is no relationship with which we can respond to God. Apart from God's merciful intervention in our lives, we don't reach back. We are, we are dead. And our bent is a bent toward a life of self, self-centeredness, self-absorption, self-promotion, self-pity. People do good things. People do kind things. But the orientation of life is this. And I believe what Paul is saying is this is what has been passed down. This is true. And I believe when you describe people this way, it does sound very negative. It sounds heavy. And you might say, well, that is an incredibly pessimistic view of mankind. I, I, I get it, but I would argue it is realistic. Jonathan Edwards made the statement, uh, once when he was he, in his book, The Great Christian Doctrine of Original Sin Defended, which was a typical long name for books that everybody wrote. He was arguing with someone, debating with them the idea, is, this, is, is there this natural bent towards evil or not? And he said, I think of it like a dice game, which was interesting for an old Puritan guy. He said, I think it was like a dice game. And he said, if you were playing dice and the other guy you were playing rolled a thousand times in a row. Just he kept rolling dice, rolling the dice, rolling the dice. And every time the dice came up, a pair of sixes. He says, you would begin to assume this is not just random chance. These dice are loaded. They're fixed. And he says, when you look at all of humanity and you see complete empirical evidence that we are oriented towards sin in our behavior, and there are no, no, no um, other examples or exceptions to that, he says you can begin to think the dice is loaded, that it isn't just as random and you just happen to run into the wrong group or the wrong social construct, but actually the dice is loaded because the race has fallen into sin, and there is a bent towards sin that is passed down generationally. A number of you read a book somewhere in your education. It is a book by William Golding. It's the book that has been, Time Magazine declared it, over the last century, one of the top 100 most influential books in the English language. It's a book called The Lord of the Flies. And in The Lord of the Flies, William Golding is actually reacting to a book that had been written just before his. He won a Pulitzer Prize for it, um, a Nobel Prize for it. And, but he... He's writing the book, and he's reacting to a book that was called The Coral Island. The Coral Island was a story of a guy who had a Rousseau, a uh, Pelagius view of mankind, that he, he had these two boys, Jack and Ralph, and then some compatriots, and they were younger boys, and they got shipwrecked on an island, and what happened was this nirvana, perfect, paradisical environment without the influence of school, without the influence of church, without the influence of parents, without the influence of adults who could, who could ruin them, these boys grew up in this, this paradise environment. And William Holding came along, William Golding came along, not a believer, 
not, I don't even know if he's a religious man, but he came along and he basically read the book and he said, that is ridiculous. He said, this guy never had children, obviously. He's never done life very much. And he said, so he wrote a book and it's called The Lord of the Flies. And the two guys that were the, the main characters of the Coral Island were two boys named Ralph and Jack. So in The Lord of the Flies, he comes along and he, and he has two stars and they're both young guys and they're called Ralph and Jack. He was trying to make this clear what he was doing. And he writes this classic book about what happens on the island when all these boys are there and they're left to their own devices and there's no control and there's no laws and there's no adults and there's no church and, and there's no school and there's no parents. And what happens? And it's ugly. They break into factions. There's viciousness. A boy is even murdered. There's all kinds of beastly behavior. And in his own words, he said, I was trying to argue that to show how culture created by man will invariably turn to barbarism. That the natural bent of the human heart, this is my word, not his, but then this was his words, will turn toward unrestrained evil and destruction. That there have to be the rule of law. There has to be restraint. There has to be ultimately God-designed structures that will restrain the bent within. And Holding was arguing for that very reality. Now here's the thing about Rousseau. I'm coming back, and this will be my last thing on this. Rousseau wrote this book, Emile, and it is a book of tremendous impact in the two centuries since it's been written, showing this perfect boy who had been raised in a perfectly protected environment, and now he married the perfect woman, and they're doing a perfect life together. And it's like uh, the, the sense you have at the end of the book, Emile, is... And they both lived happily ever after because how could they not? When Rousseau died, they found in his room manuscript. And it was a manuscript of a sequel that he had written. He never had it printed. It was a sequel that had come about in his own life journey. And the sequel was the story of Emile and Sophie after their marriage. And what happened after their marriage in the story was this. They had a child. The child died. They grew disenchanted with each other and bored with each other. They became estranged. In their estrangement, living together but distant, both of them got involved with affairs with others. Sophie got pregnant with someone else's child. This caused total destruction to the marriage. Emile left. Eventually, his life totally dissipated. He, he actually ended up in slavery. It is a story of sorrow, of emptiness, and strikingly, the title that he gave to the book on the manuscript, which he never had printed, was entitled, Emile and Sophie, The Lonely Ones. Even Rousseau, in doing life and watching life, came to realize there is an orientation within us that is not just restrained by external perfection. There is a bent towards this. The, the dice is weighted towards that. And it came about, Romans 5 12 tells us, because of a fall that, that the human race took into sin, we now make our choices every day and are responsible for those choices, but there is that orientation 
This is what we have received from our representative man and what we have lived out ourselves in all of our lives. And just in the next couple of minutes, he tells us about the second man. He says this in Romans chapter 5. He says, verse 14, Adam, Adam was a pattern of the one to come. Jesus is the second Adam. Verses 15 to 21, Jesus' actions were different. Jesus chose righteousness, not sin. He did not sin. He lived in total righteousness. Matthew 3.15 says, He fulfilled all righteousness. The results of Jesus' actions were different. They led to life and not to death. Verse 17 says in, in Romans 5, For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ, he said, Adam's actions made us slaves. Christ's actions make us kings. That the second Adam provides not only life in the place of death, but it says we reign in life. We're not slaves to, to the bent towards evil. He has brought about an entire new capacity to do life. He says it resulted in justification, not condemnation. Verse 18, consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all, so the result of one act of righteousness was justification. Just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The second Adam also had the test. Would he live righteously? He fulfilled righteousness, and it says that, that Jesus Christ provided a way for us not to live under the sentence, the verdict of condemnation deserving of judgment, but rather the verdict of acceptance, the verdict of being declared righteous, that the validating performance record has been laid to our account. And as I've said a number of times in this series, that what Jesus Christ did, first of all, was die the death we should have died. He bore the punishment for our sins. The verdict of sin, our condemnation, He took on Himself. Secondly, the verdict of His righteous life was laid to our account. And a guy named Jay Gretchen says it beautifully with this statement. Here's what he says. As a matter of fact, Christ has not merely paid the penalty of Adam's first sin and the penalty of the sins which we individually have committed, but also He has positively merited for us eternal life. He was, in other words, our representative, both in the penalty paying and in the law keeping. He paid the penalty for us and merited for us the reward by His perfect obedience to God's law. Adam, before, before he fell, was righteous in the sight of God, but he was still under the possibility of becoming unrighteous. Those who have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ not only are righteous in the sight of God, but they are beyond the possibility of becoming unrighteous. In their case, the test is over because Christ has stood it for them. And I've said this before, and if you don't take out of this series in, in the first five chapters of Romans anything else, please take with you this one. Justification is not causing me now to be in a place where I have, it is just as if I never sinned. It is way more than that. 
It is literally just as if I lived perfect obedience. It is not a blank slate where I'm brought back to innocence and neutrality. It is, I am standing in positive righteousness. My, my performance, validating performance record is as if I did all that Jesus Christ did in living righteously. It is laid to my account because of Christ. The power of Jesus' actions were greater. Verse 20 and 21, he keeps saying, how much more, how much more, how much more? How much more is Jesus as, as, our, as our, our second Adam, the work he did compared to the first one? How much more benefits he gives in comparison to the damage of the first? So much that he says in verse 21, literally, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Here's where we wrap up. Basically, what we're told in Romans 5 is we stand in relationship to one representative. We can stand, as the New Testament often talks about, being in Adam. What that means is our standing is we are living with the consequences of his performance. We live it out every day in our own performance, validating it. Or we can stand in the performance record of Jesus Christ. We stand in Christ. There is no third option. I don't stand in Mark. I stand in either Adam or I stand in Christ. John Stott says it this way, so then whether we are condemned or justified, whether we are spiritually alive or dead, depends on which humanity we belong to. Whether we still belong to the old humanity initiated by Adam or to the new humanity initiated by Christ. Jesus Christ comes to provide acceptance for us. And what he's arguing in this big, long passage with all these theological trappings is basically, yes, Christ, the second Adam, is qualified to free us from the enslavement of sin, to free us from the verdict of unacceptability, to make us acceptable eternally, to do life eternally with God. He is not only God, not only God the Son, not only the Son of Man, not only the Messiah. He's the second Adam. He's the second option. We can live with our faith and trust in Him, or we can keep it in ourselves, which actually is to entrust ourselves to our first standing and our first Adam. Let's pray. Lord, a lot of things we've laid out there today I ask that you would take some point, principle of what we've said and apply it to people's hearts. Help us, Lord, to trust ourselves less, to trust Jesus more, to love Christ more because of what this passage is telling us has taken place in our lives. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming as the second Adam. Thank you for giving us another swing at this thing. And we can stand in you because what you have done, and we're not graded on our report card of righteousness, but yours. And we love you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now go in peace to love and serve and enjoy the Lord.